0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil and this is...
1: Emily-Kate Stevens.
0: Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID.
1: And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Noreen. How was your week?
0: Well, my good run is finally over, I think. Oh. I haven't been feeling too great. It started with the... Except to for my tongue becoming quite sore. I think that's the first sign I get now. It's really weird. My son's been sick. He's had a couple of, I think, different viruses. I haven't really been sick, but I've picked up a bit of a sore throat. But my facial flushing is back. My heart rate's all over the place. Chest pain. The usual long COVID And I've been well for months.
1: Yeah. Do you think it's because of the viruses that he's got that's just done that thing that triggers your immune system?
0: Yeah. I'm assuming that's what's happened.
1: I'm sorry, love.
0: That's all right. Uh, But, you know, I always knew that this would... I never
1: felt like I was cured. I felt I was better. I guess we also just have to be really grateful for those it's sort of maybe three months that you had that were actually good predominantly good maybe more good than bad without really scary bits as well yeah no I haven't had any of the dizziness or the the really bad heart
0: the really bad heart stuff for months
1: yeah and the kind of frightening pain that you've had previously
0: I had none of that but that's all back like a an old friend revisiting Mm. and they're just visiting
1: okay so they are just (laughs) visiting they don't live with you you can get rid of them. Just allow them to be a while and then ship them home.
0: I have to say it's not even a friend, it's like one of those dodgy relatives. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't invite. Yeah, that you didn't invite and you know and you can't be rude enough to say go away, never come back. So I think that's the analogy. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, no, I've, had, I've not been feeling well. And the last couple of days have been particularly bad. So I, yesterday, because the chest pain is back, I started taking my culture scene. Did it have an effect?
1: Because you do see an effect when you're going into a dip and you take your antihistamines. You said to me yeah. I mean, yesterday that you do actually feel certain symptoms getting better. Do you feel a sort of immediate effect or an effect as a direct result of the culture scene?
0: No, but the colchicine is one of those where if I've got chest pain, I'm assuming I've got inflammation in or around my heart.
1: So it's going to take a while to reduce that inflammation.
0: And as colchicine is an anti-inflammatory that was given to me by my cardiologist, I take that, which I'm assuming will help reduce the inflammation.
1: Yeah, but it may take a a little while.
0: But yeah, no, I've been actually quite crappy. Oh, sleep loss. Today I, I had to drive for a couple of hours, and my face was like I looked like a tomato. And I haven't had facial flushing for what seven, eight months. Yeah. Again, leading me to think that it might be autoimmune. Mm. We might have the version of the syndrome that's autoimmune. Yeah. Because I think we're fairly sure that not everybody has the same mechanisms. No. So given that I'm having a crappy week, how are you? Please tell me you're feeling good. I'm
1: so good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the last time that I was able to say that to you. I would like to apologise for the hiatus. We were sort of coming back after the summer and then I had to go to work covering the Queen's funeral. So I did 12 straight days of work out on location filming and I didn't have a crash after it. And I'm still here bracing myself for that crash. I'm not saying that I've been completely buoyant the whole time, there have been slight dips within that, but I feel much more like myself. My sleep is pretty bad and I think that that's something I now have to watch because I think that a whole load of my symptoms were probably, maybe not caused, but certainly worsened by chronic insomnia. I probably had insomnia for 18 months throughout this beginning of this long COVID. So I think that I have to make sure that I do sort my sleep out so that I don't spiral. But I just feel different. I've spent two and a half years with my house a complete tip with just not being able to get on top of things. I'm still struggling slightly to catch up my to-do list that I've not done whilst I was doing that work. But I just feel... I manage to pick things up from the stairs and to just just do things as I go along. And that's not just a physical shift. That's a cognitive shift because I've spent so long. Just I didn't have the energy or the will to do anything.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. I, and I'm not saying it's going to last. I'm not saying that this is it, but I am really enjoying I, I, I get shocked every morning when I wake up and I feel okay. Like, hey, I get set, such a strange feeling. And then I go out and I'm averaging about 15,000 steps a day, which is way up from, I was probably averaging six, seven thousand three three months ago. So my energy levels and my exertion levels are going up.
0: That's brilliant. It's funny though, because you say that you're shocked that you're feeling well when you wake up. And I'm not shocked that I don't feel well after being so well. Like it's kind of like an old familiar itch that you have somewhere that you know how to deal with it. So it's not mentally as difficult to deal with when I'm feeling unwell. Do you think? Because I had that good period, but there was always a part of me that knew it wasn't going to ever last. Mm. So I enjoyed it.
1: I... Yeah, that is the like slight difference between us, though, isn't it? Because I am the eternal optimist who every time I feel okay, I'm like, yeah, I'm fixed. Yeah, I think that's the
0: difference between us. I'm more of a realist and I know definitely it's definitely going to come back. I feel like that because I was never 100%. I got to about 95% me.
1: Yeah, and I'd say that. I'd say that about myself, even in this good bit. I still couldn't live my life at the pace that I used to live life.
0: Yeah, and another thing is after being well for a while, when you do return to this long COVID state, you do realise how well you were. Yeah. Because now I'm walking around feeling quite dizzy and it takes so much effort yeah. to do anything when you're feeling dizzy that you are reminded that when you're well, it takes no effort at all just to go and do things and think about things. But the-
1: it takes a lot of effort to be unwell or everything takes effort when you are unwell. You didn't notice it in life before, how many things you did or...
0: It's interesting
1: how accepting I am of it. Well, acceptance is something we speak about at length with this week's guest. This week we spoke to Amiad Abrahams, who is a clinical health psychologist and he works for the Northwest London Long Covid service. So he specifically does a programme of mindfulness for Long Covid patients.
0: You don't get to our age, I think without learning that if you sit down, take a deep breath, it does calm you down. So I'm a great believer in mind-body connection, and it was really good to see that the NHS has invested in exploring that link in their own hospitals because you only think of it in terms of Eastern medicine.
1: Yeah. So it was really lovely. But I know that it is actually something that could potentially be slightly contentious, us putting something out on mindfulness, because I know that some people have taken offense when they have been offered just mindfulness or some kind of psychological therapy when they've gone with long COVID. But it explains that mind-body connection and how they're not trying to fix problems with the head, but they are just trying to help along the way. I No, AMIAD already, because I was fortunate enough to be offered a mindfulness course by my long COVID clinic. And AMIAD was the person leading my six-week mindfulness course. And for me, I think that it is one of the most instrumental, possibly the most instrumental thing that I have done in terms of Moving towards healing from long COVID. That is how we already know each other. So, Noreen, from that,
0: for me, I was particularly interested in talking to you because my mindfulness course was basically to make sure that I wasn't suicidal. That was that was what I was offered on the NHS in terms terms of of psychology. In terms of psychology, from my from my long COVID clinic which is completely different to Emily's experience and which is why we wanted to talk to you and share some of the knowledge that Emily was getting with people like me
1: who are not getting any of that information or help. I chose not to disclose when I did the course that we did this podcast. I didn't want other people to think that I was going to the course as some kind of research thing. I wasn't. I was going entirely as a patient. But Noreen and I have spoken extensively when we've not been recording about my experience of it.
0: And we start actually each show asking each other how our weeks were, because Mm. long COVID is such an up and down illness that we feel you can only measure your health in terms of week by week. So we start each week with how was your week, because it's really relevant to our experience of this chronic illness, and which leads us on nicely, I think, to you and how you help people like us deal with kind of the ups and downs of it ups and downs.
2: Yes, I'm sort of really holding back my instinct to ask you both, how was your week? And it was an unusual week. I know Emily was very busy um, while working. Um, I have to relate what you've mentioned when it comes to what mindfulness is for, what the NHS is trying to do. So, Emily said it was helpful in moving towards healing. to quote. And it's a very good description of what it is that we try to do with mindfulness. So the general attitude is moving towards things rather than moving away from things. And when reality, reality, because it's a painful body, fatigued body, blurry, foggy mind, and I suppose resources that tend to disagree with people's needs and vice versa, So the immediate uh, tendency or uh, instinct is to move away from the same thing that keeps us safe when we are moving away from a boiling pot, for instance, so then we don't get burned. But then sometimes when pain is there to stay, or to fluctuate, or fatigue, or you name it, the myriad symptoms that long COVID may have, being with, rather than moving away from, allows people to move towards healing. Or rather to move towards themselves. So, uh, perhaps a bit philosophical will be more specific further uh, down the line.
0: So tell us about your program.
2: Yeah. I'm part of the team in a post COVID assessment clinic. It's a multidisciplinary in essence. So I'm a health psychologist. My work is uh, uh, in, in the, just in the middle of the triangle of a uh, biopsychosocial understanding of human beings, our body our emotions and brains and minds, as well as our context, our relationships. We have a body and we have a context and we have some thoughts and notions and perceptions about it. So having that in mind, these post-COVID assessment clinics, that's how it's devised. There's a consultant and a physiotherapist and an occupational therapist and a psychologist. So it's either a health psychologist or a clinical health psychologist or a neuropsychologist. Someone who knows a bit about mind and body—that's that's the that's
1: the combining of them.
2: Yeah, sort of. And then we, we people go through this one-stop shop, and we try to attend all these various needs, but not just one by one, but also to have this MDT perspective—a wholesome, comprehensive perspective. Um, so, Noreen, and I, I suppose that keeping people alive is—it's a good start.
0: My long COVID clinic is not one of the best, I would have to say. Emily was quite lucky in where she lives. She managed to get to see you, which has an MDT. Mine does not. So once
2: again, it's about resources and how they're spread across. Um, Yeah. And that's the part of the reality bit. So you can't deny it. So many inequalities are there. And although we meet all sorts of human beings in our clinics, because Northwest London is rather a large patch and very diverse, Things are not always equal and fair. It's uh, very saddening. So when we try to do that, to attend the whole person that had COVID, sometimes with a terrifying initial phase, sometimes not. Sometimes it was a very mild illness at the beginning. uh, But then the aftermath is quite devastating and ongoing. So we, we try to attend the, the whole thing without disregarding a person if the initial experience with COVID wasn't so severe. Because we see people, we are very open-minded and we come with our skill set and we try to help people move towards their recovery whilst knowing that we don't have all the answers. Uh, this royal we, I mean, it's me and my MDT, like my colleagues from different professions. When people are suffering, and when there's lots of uncertainty involved, and when things fluctuate, it is quite common that people feel that they had enough. And they would go for any resort, including thinking, possibly, of putting an end to it, as in committing suicide. So we try to assess that because we know it is potential. People can really feel despaired when it's so, so long, regardless of people's resources. So very resilient people with lots of resources and support systems. Sometimes when the body is going under its ongoing suffering, the response is a bit different. So I suppose we start with that, but then, all right, so you're alive and what now? And that, that's the question that we ask because it, it's, it's a chronic condition for now up until we'll find some sort of a cure or uh, some more answers to long covid But how to help people to be more hopeful but also to provide them with some skills that would allow the reality to be uh, brighter rather than darker. And those sorts of specific things that we are trying to do, whether it's just to think together, to formulate, what is it that felt so chaotic? And why is it that people feel so different than their usual selves? People feel awfully frustrated, especially these very competent people In all sorts of ways, it's not about profession or the economic status or you name it, but people who are competent with meeting immense traumas in the past, sometimes just living their lives with peace and satisfaction, just having it all right, and then they feel that they're failing to meet the reality. That's a very unpleasant uh, thing to feel, so the identity is muddled up and that's another part of the fog. So, mindfulness is one of the things we do, but basically, the idea is to allow people to feel like themselves and not to allow this uh, painful, unsettling reality to divert them from that. Because even when when we suffer, and we do suffer, all human beings, all listeners of this podcast, it's, it's never really perfect and sometimes it's really horrendous. We are still ourselves. We can always be aware to pay attention to what it is that we feel now, rather than trying to turn it off via, well, there's all sorts of ways to do that. So committing suicide is very, very extreme. And not so many people do that, although many do choose that. Drug use can be something that we can do. We can distract ourselves constantly by listening to music or watching the telly or reading a book. And we do that because it's enjoyable many times. I adore music. We use it in our sessions. But just to allow things to be, to attend yourself, even when it's really, really hard and painful, because sometimes it's the only thing you've got left. And we learned that from people who had chronic or uh, very acute illness. We know that from people who were kept in uh, camps and hostages. So you always have that. You always have yourself. And that's something that we really try to uh, allow people to, to meet. I know that my answers can be sometimes very associative, but that's, I guess it's part of my profession.
1: I actually think that's wonderful as well, because I think what we want to do here is it's almost giving people a little taste of some of what they are offered in this course. If we just talk about the specifics of how you structured the course, It's a six-week course with then a further session for follow-up. But this isn't a one-to-one mindfulness course. And it's also not completely individual sessions. There is a trajectory that goes through it. For me, one of the most amazing things about it, I have Noreen. We have each other to talk to about our long COVID experience. But it was incredible to be part of a group of other people going through the same thing. So I think that the way that you structured it with a group healing is uh, group group therapy, whatever you call it, is quite remarkable. But could you tell us about your decision to do it like that and the way in which you structured the programme? Because you have people entering that course who have never done mindfulness or meditation. So you can't just go into it assuming that everyone is... Some kind of you know Zen Buddhist,
2: <laughs> yes. And <laughs> like, Emily. Some, like Emily, <laughs> yeah, well, yes. And you have some people who were practicing for years, mindfulness, and are still practicing. And we have it as a source of a booster. So mindfulness is no longer a new practice, or is no longer something which is newly used in the NHS or any healthcare surroundings. It's been around since 1970s, and we won't go through the full history of John Kabat-Zinn and, and his. Uh, Mindfulness-based stress reduction clinics or interventions. But these are foundations. In St. Mary's Clinical Health Psychology Department, there's a course that is running for several years now, developed by Agnes Kochis, who is the lead of the department. The name is Mabel, and it's a, a mindfulness course for people with long-term conditions. And there, they combine mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapy. And that course lasts for eight sessions, two hours each. It was held face-to-face. And the people who came to this course, the participants, were people with all sorts of medical conditions. So it was a very wide cohort, very diverse, and they were sharing a single thing, which is having a long-term condition, pain, fatigue, autoimmune disorders, you name it. And it seemed to be working very well. It is all the things that we do. We take evidence. We are scientists, after all. We, we're very kind and compassionate, but we use science. We need the numbers to know that we are doing the right thing, or at least that we're doing no harm. We took that format. We seem to be working in other conditions. How do we take our experience from oncology, uh, chronic fatigue clinics, pain clinics? I used to work in acute care, like in an emergency department and the surgical wing. So seeing people who were not ill, but just injured, recently, in a very acute way. So we take that knowledge and we use that initially to tailor it to the specific needs of people with COVID initially or with immediate post-COVID effects. And then when someone came up with the name post-COVID syndrome or long COVID, we have more understanding of what this cohort might need. The initial course was eight sessions prior to COVID, two hours each. And the main anchor in the meditation techniques was the breathing. So when we're thinking about what might be the needs of people with long COVID, first of all, we said, well, six weeks, eight weeks is perhaps just a bit too much because the time span is so dense now. COVID is such a, an interesting way, a very acute condition, though it tends to smear up and to, to be such a, Lengthy process of recovery. So shifting in between this very acute notion of the beginning and then the chronic formation of long COVID. So six weeks seems to be more dense and more appropriate to the emerging needs of people with long COVID that have been waiting for treatment for so long. So people do wait for a long while before they come to their assessment clinics. And then they spend some more time waiting for the intervention to take place. And we shorten the sessions for one hour and a half each. Because two hours is just too much for a person with a brain fog and fatigue. That's what we thought. Uh, Perhaps it also corresponds with my attention span. But, well, (laughs) it's a a win-win situation.
1: And the fact that this was not in person, this was online rather than in person.
2: Mm, So I suppose you mean Zoom fatigue. Yeah, Yeah. it's
1: definitely a thing with uh, long COVID. You don't want to be on video call for too long.
2: Uh, Not at all. And we have a break in the middle. And we don't use breathing as an anchor because sometimes for people to relate to their breathing is quite uh, counterproductive.
1: Is it? That's interesting.
2: So in some ways, we thought that people have such immense organic issues with breathing, so using that as an anchor is not fair. Whether Mm. for people with breathing pattern disorder, with no specific lung damage, and we know that because we have people refer to our clinic to our mindfulness group, after they were assessed. So it's not a wild guess. And people can't just self-refer to the group, they have to be assessed by clinic beforehand, either in the community or in our acute clinics in the hospitals. If someone's really having a hard time to breathe and their lungs are not quite right again, using the breathing as a soothing, grounding anchor might help the breathing pattern, but might distract a person or and their ability to just be mindful of all the rest of it.
1: So it really is structured that people can just attend. It's okay for people to have their cameras off, and they can just attend the course and be there without necessarily then having to be active in the breathing to get the benefits from it.
2: The only thing we ask people to do when they join the course is to try as best they can to commit to attend all of the sessions, because it is a course, it's not... Uh, support group, per se. And we ask them very kindly what we do ask to try and practice every single day using our guided meditations, at least for the time of the course, and then they can choose. We love seeing people's faces. We'd rather people have the cameras on and we are happy to see people in all sorts of conditions. So, you know, I can lie down in bed having puffy eyes and everything is all messy, but it's them. And we're sort of, we love you as you are, and it's all right. Some people choose to have the cameras off, and it's okay. And some people choose to speak when we are the, the big forum in the group. And some people choose not to say a single word all along the course. Although we have like breakout rooms when people can speak in a smaller, more intimate forum, and then everybody speaks. Unless they're really, really horribly weak and they have sore throat and then they say hello, and that's that's enough. So we're very inclusive in that sense.
1: And very accepting. Very accepting of however people are, however people show up. And that I think goes through the whole course, that idea of acceptance.
2: Yeah. Acceptance. Not as in surrendering or embracing a situation, but acceptance as in being with, getting to know yourself in a specific condition. And then it gives us more space to choose, to change. I want to to relate, you mentioned the, the group aspect of it, the healing aspect of being in a group. So COVID was not just a physical phenomenon. It's a, it's wider than that. Uh, people were very isolated. Mm. And being in a group seems to relate to that very well. And there's two sorts of isolation initially, sometimes sheer concrete isolation because they couldn't see other people. And then later on, in a funny way, so everybody are meeting again. It seems like it, the world is back to pace. Now we saw the funeral last week, um, people have been in concerts, shows, you name it, the streets are alive. But then some people are left out of it. People are still are isolated even if they are sort of back to life so people who had covid and they're back to the routine but the symptoms are invisible and although people try to share it's sometimes it's hard to convey what it is that you feel and sometimes it's a bit tiring and then it's a different sort of isolation feeling lonely or isolated from other people who can't understand what it is that you feel or can't relate to it in a way that you perhaps need And in the group, although it's not a must in mindfulness practices and mindfulness courses, we do have these moments which the dynamic is more a sort of a support group. Without going to many details, you know how it looks like, Emily. It's not like my name is and you tell your full story in length. But when people say something, I see both smiling and nodding. So, So people smile and nod. And I find it very interesting that people smile and nod when someone says something nice and happy and optimistic. But also when members of the group share something very painful. And then all the people, "Hmm, yeah, I know this. And it's lovely to feel that you're being recognized and that you're not the only crazy person who experienced this thought, feeling, emotion or very awkward symptom, for instance.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. There's a lot of discussion on social media as well about that isolation of, Still being ill, or still not being able to fully engage in life, even if you're going through certain of the motions, that realization that other people are in the same situation is quite, quite powerful.
2: Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. yeah, it is in a very simple way to feel this togetherness in a very safe environment, and it's it's interesting to see that because we don't set so many rules to the group. They say, "All right, we're a group of human beings. be decent. We all are different. Uh, everybody are invited to speak. And everybody are really honest and very kind, but, but in a very simple, straightforward way. So nobody is going, "Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that, not at all. Something is very to the point in a way, and, and I like it because then people can really uh, speak freely. There's more compassion and not really uh, mercy or uh, pity.
0: I would say long COVID, it's almost the post-pandemic pandemic, pandemic, right? There is this huge cohort of people who are like Emily and I, varying degrees of disease. Some are more sick, some are less sick, but we all are suffering. We're no longer the people we were before we got this. There is this social community on on all the various platforms, you know, Instagram, um, Twitter, Facebook. uh, Facebook. There are these groups on social media and we all echo the same things. But you're not almost given permission to feel that you are actually sick. Yes. If you're in this kind of formal, recognized setting by a different body, and this time this the medical community, you almost feel like you're legitimately ill. I think that would be, for me, quite, because I have never had that. No, you're definitely sick. Yeah. That is quite powerful.
2: Yes, it's like annoying. My initial instinct, my chest goes like a defensive in a way. Like, oh man, where, where are we failing? I think that's the lesson I've learned from a chronic pain clinic. Many chronic pain conditions are called syndromes. And whenever mm. I hear the word syndrome, I'm like, hmm, interesting. So it's mm. a, a, like a, a cluster of, of things that the person is experiencing. And there's no way to see that in any sort of imaging, blood tests, you name it. But the person is in pain, devastating pain sometimes, and there's no name for it for years. And the relief when someone gets a diagnosis is immense, immense, although it doesn't change one bit of the pain, and sometimes it comes along with no potential life treatment, really easy. It might be sort of just the same thing. Take some painkillers, exercise, practice mindfulness, because it works. There's no specific cure. And I think having that recognition that the system is telling you and the system is sponsoring treatment and like there's lots of like money involved and it's your money, Noreen and Emily and all the listeners. You you like, we pay our taxes. So it's all for free, right? Someone is paying for it and that's the way the system chooses to use it. There is a condition. It is not in your head. It might be in your brain because brains respond to COVID, right? So people can't smell. That's nothing is wrong with the nose. It's somewhere there in the brain. And when people are lying down because they can't move for so long, some parts of their central nervous system respond to that. And there's some deconditioning. And pain in the body gets a bit weaker. So meeting that pain may it be a neurological pain, something real, which is quite similar to the pain that can happen after, since having an ongoing diabetic condition, which is untreated. So you can feel that. But then the body gets weaker and you have less support systems and, and everything sort of spirals down. And when people feel that the system does not recognize that, oh, you've been ill, you're, why don't you exercise more? Oh, no, you're, you're not doing the right things or all these. It's not very helpful and it's really, in a way, sabotaging people's hope for recovery. And when people feel that they need to insist to say, listen, these are my symptoms, And it it becomes a battle. So although people are doing their best to prove that they have symptoms as well as trying to get better at the same time, it's hard to let go. I was uh, recently sitting with a child who was just about to have a polio vaccine. And uh, one child was quite, all right, let's give it a shot. We'll see how it works. And there was no pain involved. The other child, the muscles were tense. And it was just more painful. The thing is, the needle is painful. COVID is a condition. and when the dynamic between the system and the clients becomes very disregarding or people are feeling that they're not being seen or recognized, it becomes a battle. And and then pain is intensified. So if you have long COVID, you have post-viral condition or an autoimmune condition, and then your body is in pain, say from a scale from 0 to 10, 12, 11, 13, And then you're busy struggling, it gets even more painful. And in a way, that's to encapsulate how health psychology relates to the mind-body thing. So the body is there. There's a condition. And what we are coming to do is not to say it's all in your head, but we are saying, oh, if if we can perhaps ease these extra 20%, that's, that's good enough. And in a way, I mean, you know, when you you wrote me an email after the group, and you're saying, yes, it it works for me and so forth. Uh, I was very surprised because we have no expectations. We meet people. We ask people for nothing but to try and attend. There are no expectations. And I think this exact stance allows things to change.
1: I think there are a couple of things there you have said before, your aim is to de-psychologise Long Covid, as in to show that it's not in people's head, whilst psychologizing oh. life itself. So to bring us that awareness of our mind and our body and how they're interacting. I didn't come with expectations. I was kind of pissed off with the NHS for... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For in the same way that we've seen on social media, mm. this immediate, is this literally the only thing that you're going to offer me? No testing, no nothing, no uh, referrals to a specialist. It was just the mindfulness. Yeah, But you do need to attend it with an open mind. It would be great if you could then explain how the power of the mind or the power of the mindfulness hmm. uh, then has this ability.
2: It's a bit about the formulation, what, what it is that we are intending to do, or to talk about the mechanism of, of mindfulness. I won't do that in length because you know, there's so many books and other people's English is much better than mine. So if people had COVID. Regardless of the severity of the symptoms at the beginning, it was a traumatic condition. Okay, not necessarily leading to PTSD. People are very resilient. That's amazing to see that. But it was, and still is, in the context of um, great uncertainty at the beginning, surely many people had experienced a real threat on their lives. So many people tell us, I was thinking I'm about to die. And then they say, and I was ready to go. I was struggling. I was contemplating, I was very peaceful. But then the thing is, so people then, they're, they're alive, they don't die, but they still have this strong memory and the body is still uh, is caught around that, that immediate risk and threat and the body's instinct and the brain's instincts to keep us uh, alive and well. Starting with just to survive, just survival is something that's not enough. So uh, the brains are literal physical brains have uh, responded, I think, I think, we're looking for the proofs still, for the evidence, have responded to that initial trauma, which was both biological, the immune system's storm that triggered all sorts of neurological mechanisms that are there to protect us. But then when we are safe and the brain is still operating on that mode, that is the risk-centered or threat-centered mode, it can cause all sorts of inconveniences or physical and psychological upheavals. People are going through that. They were very isolated, and reality was shaped as a horror movie in many ways. And then, even after reality, sort of gradually dwindling towards feeling normal, whatever normal is, is in, in many ways, many people's brain, the physical brain, is still there. So, we see all sorts of phenomena where the threat-related systems in the body are still turned on. That's whilst the body is still, well, very fatigued, because sometimes when the body is very ill, so the immediate instinct, the physical instinct, is to rest a lot, so to conserve energy. By the way, another thing that happens, and that's within the formulation of illness behavior, that we have an instinct to avoid cross-infection. We tend to not really want to see other people, And actually eating also involves lots of energy, so appetite can be affected. When we tick all these boxes, not wanting to interact with other people, wanting to rest a lot, the appetite is, well, different now, and the body feels all-encompassing pain or sort of weakness, so it looks like either having a very severe flu or being extremely depressed. And that's an interesting thing. So sometimes suicidal ideation, specifically in COVID, but also in other uh, viral infections can be just a biological thing. It's something that the brain does sometimes when there's a a very strong reaction of the immune system. It happened in COVID. Uh, I'm telling you that because in mindfulness, what we're trying to do is to attend these mechanisms without confronting these mechanisms. It's like when you meet someone very upset and you tell him, calm down. It's it's not very soothing, right? It tends to escalate. Just, <laughs> I've just seen that in the street the other day. <laughs> calm down, soothe yourself. You're panicking. It's not helpful.
1: That's kind of, I think, what people feel a lot of the time that they are being given. They go for medical help and they're told, just stop being anxious about it and you'll be fine. <laughs> it's not it's, yeah. it's not very productive.
2: Yeah,
0: So I'm really interested in this idea that you just formulated, that the biological mechanisms make us appear like we are depressed, but also then do lead to some kind of depression because we're no longer ourselves. Yeah. But is this part of the reason why there's such a split in some of the medical responses where they say it is anxiety, you don't have long COVID, You're obviously exhibiting all the signs of clinical depression. Here are some good drugs.
2: Yeah. So And and sometimes the drugs are awfully helpful because it allows people to go closer to their baseline and then they can use their usual resources because they're capable human beings uh, to attend their pain, to take better care of themselves, to eat better, to have better relationships with their families uh, and all the other things that cause pain. It, it's so tricky, right? It's like an a egg-chicken mm, yeah. <laughs> formation. The thing is, and in a funny way, and that's why we're scientists and we do this evidence-based work, whatever works. So sometimes taking medication, even though the depression or anxiety are absolutely secondary, mm-hmm. that is, the brain was absolutely fine, no trauma, it's not a biological depression, it's a contextual Low mood, worriness and despair because life are so different now. It looks like depression, quacks like depression, everything, the whole lot. But it is contextual and secondary. Um, in our reports, in our summary letters, the clinic letters, uh, one of the most common words we use is contextual. When we relate to what people feel. But it's not a new thing. That's, that's how we look at people's reality
1: i was reading a frontiers paper from april 2021 it was a paper looking at using mindfulness to treat anxiety depression and stress following covid okay what you're trying to do is not just treat those things that we classify as mental health challenges mental health disorders you're trying to go wider than that
2: Yes, well, we imagine there are specific lines between mind, body, brain, but it's just not the case. Uh, it used to be less certain when I was saying that before, but as time goes by, and then as I see many human beings, it's it's just it's impossible to differentiate that. You can't attend just the mood, as well as you can't attend just the body.
0: This is why it's so important that there are MDT clinics available yeah. to you.
2: In so many ways, our service is Northwest London Long COVID Psychology Service, this long title. It's responding to the way reality is. It's hybrid. We work both online and face-to-face. We always work in MDTs. So it's not an isolated service. It's not like a specific psychological department. There's always some phase in which we sit with other people who attend other bits of the body. And our MDT meetings, uh, it's very funny to see. Because a stranger might find it hard to differentiate who's who in the meeting because things are mixing up. I think when you do mindfulness or any psychological treatment, we have to attend everything. We have to attend everything. So not everything. And the assessment sessions, for instance, are just 30 minutes long in these clinics. But if someone had very rough childhood, how can I differentiate that from the recent COVID experience? And it may be a person who is functioning perfectly. You wouldn't imagine what people do and how hopeful and resilient people are, as I said. But sometimes going through a new trauma resonates with old traumas. So I have to relate to that. We cannot say, okay, we're just going to attend the mind-body effects of your COVID, because there's a person in the room with housing issues or with very wealthy background, but um, cannot really enjoy that wealth at the moment because everything's quite, well, unpleasant and tiring. So we have to attend all of that. In the mindfulness sessions to go back to the brain. So finding a way via practicing these meditations, which are all about paying attention on purpose, moment by moment to the here and now with no justice, is a great way to come closer to our brains without trying to soothe our brains. It's not a relaxation technique, not at all. It's being awake technique in many ways. It allows the brain to take a step back and a step forward at the same time, just to ease, to observe. It's a very comforting stance to hold when one is going through hard times. And in some ways, and there there are evidence, it allows the immune system to tone down a bit.
1: Yeah, I was reading something from 2016 where they were collating papers looking at the impacts of mindfulness on inflammation and things like breast cancer. And there is historically, I don't know if there are any studies that you're aware of in long COVID, but there is historically evidence to suggest that it does dampen the immune system and reduce inflammation. Would you say that's the case?
2: From what I've read so far, yes. Although, as I mentioned, it is not our goal. We're not trying to fix people. We're not trying to fix people's reality. We're not trying to educate or tame our participants. We're just allowing them to, to be <laughs> themselves. no taming me. <laughs> yes. And I think it's great. So many of our groups are psychoeducational, which is very helpful. Some people just don't know how to handle very specific symptoms, like anxiety. Some people are horribly anxious after having COVID. And they never have been anxious before.
1: I'd never been anxious before. And, and I still maintain that it's a physical thing. It's a palpitations thing. Yeah. Uh, but then it, it's very strange feeling.
2: Yes. And then because you were never anxious before, you were never equipped with how to deal with that. People who had anxiety before or depression prior to COVID, and then they have an, uh, COVID post-COVID-derived anxiety or depression, they know what to do with it. That's amazing to see that. And people that had it sort of all right before covid they're empty-handed, and then we teach them these basic skills. So that's very important. But in in the mindfulness group, it's not really about that. Um, and since we're not trying to fix and to to tame, and we have no specific goal, but allowing people to be more connected to themselves, it allows the system to just be rather than struggle. If if that is the mechanism that causes the inflammation to to be lower inflammation levels. Perhaps.
0: What I've heard so far, if I could sum up in one sentence, everything that I've heard or taken in from you is you're teaching us to accept who we are now and use it to find a balance in our lives as they have changed. Mm. Because you kept saying earlier, you are who you are, You experience everything as you are, but we are no longer who we used to be.
2: Well, so to accept who we are
0: now. Yeah.
2: So I am who I am now in this very moment, being focused in this interview, relaxed, yet somewhat anxious because it's being recorded, being aware of that, being funny about it, but yes, authentically sort of concerned. So we have these moments all the time and we can check in with ourselves at every single moment. And when you're saying, as well as many others, Noreen, and it's a painful thing to feel, I'm not myself, it is your very innate being, your observing self, who can do the comparing. Because you still have some sort of clarity, clear memory of how it used to feel like. Although in some neurological ways, so some people, they have changed to the sense of smell, for instance, right? And it's not just they can't smell things as they used to smell before, they can't remember how it used to smell like. But that's not a new thing. Oliver Sacks wrote about it like decades ago about these phenomena. But the sense of self is something very, very solid. So missing it and being painful about it because it's painful to do the comparing, it's a very part of actually still being yourself. Your innate self, the one who is inquiring, who am I now? Well, you are the one who's asking that question. Our invitation in these groups, and that's to resonate with acceptance and commitment therapy, is to accept who you are now in order to allow yourself the clarity to be able to choose your commitments, so to pursue how you would rather feel like. So it's not about, well, it is what it is, and well, that's it. So long, folks. This is me now. Me, I want to feel better. Me, I am suffering. Me, I have a vague memory of being better and I did miss that. But while we miss things, we are doing that in the present. When we remember old trauma, the remembering is being done now. When we think about the future, it's always now. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Or else, what's the point? Keeping on being in the future, in the past, it's just moment by moment anyhow.
1: And I think that's one of the things, isn't it? Not to be fighting, not to be pushing for it. It takes a lot of energy to try and fight your way back to who you were. It yeah. really takes a lot of you. Whereas to allow yourself to just be with what you are now, it seems to me to have enabled me to become much more like my normal self again. Yeah, um, Although,
0: when you're in one of your bad dips and you're texting or we're talking and you're saying, oh, why? This is never ending. And I'm like, just remember, (laughs) this will
1: pass. (laughs) This too will pass. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So it's very nice to have this companionship, Noreen, right? A person who reminds us when we are not there to remind ourselves. And nobody is expected to be that. When it's very painful and the brain is horribly foggy, we just we can't remember. And that's an external condition, right? So sometimes the only thing we can do is, as soon as the sky is a bit clearer, oh, hmm, and then to relate to ourselves with some sort of forgiveness and hoping for things to be better in the future. I don't know, we sort of have that again and again.
1: Yeah, everyone needs an Noreen, though, just to remind them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's yeah. why I
1: recommend people.
2: So that's about genetic engineering. That's uh, perhaps in your next episode, how to duplicate people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's something that we do choose to do now. It's a new thing in our uh, comfort courses. The, the name of the course is Comfort, by the way. It's, it stands for COVID Mindfulness and Resilience Training.
0: Wow, good name.
2: Yes, that's Agnes Scotch. a wonderful copywriter as well as a clinical and health psychologist. <laughs>
0: It's almost as good as ours. The TLC sessions is, you know, take care of yourselves. The long COVID sessions.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. If there's any way I can relate to, to people with long COVID, uh, when they talk about frustrations, uh, is my frustration with language. I know myself in, in another language. And there's so many gaps I cannot ignore. And I can only do my best. And uh, it, it's, well, interesting to me that again and again, this ongoing frustration of not be, being really able to express a thing. Uh, and when people talk about language, maybe it's one of these things I can feel, I can resonate in a way when people have uh, cognitive issues and language deficiencies in the way post-COVID. Yeah,
0: there's so much lost in mother tongues. So my son this morning had to do a poem about the environment and I made him do it in Urdu, which is one that my mother taught him. yeah. And it's really difficult because I had to translate it afterwards to get the right essence of what he was saying yeah. in English. There's just so much missing. Yes. And I think sometimes there aren't words to describe how we're feeling in any language.
2: Indeed. And that's the thing. You said there's so much missing. So as soon as we say that, we feel perhaps the pain or the frustration because it's just a poem. Like, and it's not just so <laughs> much missing. Interesting relations with poetry, and we do use that a lot in the groups. There is so much missing with long COVID when people have it, they feel that constantly sort of an ongoing bereavement and grief on things that may have been gone with a slight hope that things may be back again. And that's a bit confusing because when grief is grief, when we lose someone, well, it's very painful, but usually it's a
1: yeah, there's a finality to it
2: in, in, in some traditions, yes. So There's so much loss. But but when we say that, we are acknowledging what was there so we can appreciate it, perhaps think about it, and indeed sort of dwell in that in a positive way because it is there in our memory, in our minds and hearts. And in, in this way, we can sort of dip our toes in something that still exists, the memory, almost the neurological memory of things that were there. And actually by doing that, There is some concrete rewiring of the brain and regeneration of some areas or as our brains are very sophisticated pieces of flesh to allow other areas in the brain to adopt the roles that were lost in other areas of the brain. We see that in neurological rehab as well as in COVID. So by doing all sorts of ways, one of the things we can do is mindfulness, psychological treatment to allow things to integrate can allow the very physical brain to create new connections and to renew old links and to use more parts of it instead of the parts that were lost or became a bit foggy. And when I say that, I relate to the cognitive brain, to people's thoughts, languages, as well as the brain who's in charge on our body and on our very regulation.
0: So what are some simple things that people like myself who don't have access to your wonderful course can do to help ourselves? What, what do you suggest for our listeners
1: or some resources?
2: So I'll go for resources. Cause I suppose your listeners, if they are listening to your podcast, they're already trying to do something. So there's already hope and commitment. It's great because we don't need to teach them to do that.
0: Actually, I just want you to bear in mind that a lot of our listeners are not just sufferers. We have a lot of medical professionals because Long COVID is still so new that they're actually turning to podcasts like ours for information. Mm, yeah. So anything you share, <laughs> hopefully will go to other professionals who may be able to, all over the world, by the way, who, who are listening to the show.
2: So as a general advice, for many people, practicing mindfulness can be helpful. It takes lots of commitment. But it works, and it has good evidence, and that's the language I speak. If it works, use it. You try it for a while, six weeks, two months, you see that nothing is changing. Well, perhaps something else might be better for you. The main thing when we talk about struggling and not struggling, I think that when professionals meet people, (laughs) when it's people meeting people, listening is very, very important. And being curious about the person's idiosyncratic experience of having something is very, very important because then we can relate not just for a specific condition. And since COVID is not an infection that one can cure with a specific medicine, one has to look at the whole context. I think by listening, first of all, it allows people to really be sincere and to tell professionals what they need and what worked for them in the past and then to try to enhance that and to support that in the new uh, context. That's one thing for professionals. And it can work from all sorts of perspectives. And I think this very notion of in really low and hard moments. So even if you feel that there's no hope, it's already you're inviting yourself for a sort of a discussion, right? There's no hope. I'm hopeless. And there's always in the brain Or hopefully someone outside there next to you to say, is it so? As people relate to their despair or pain or uncertainty, it's always an invitation for discussion. What is it that I hope for? What might be my most immediate anchor? Something I can hold into? May it be a place, food, water, a person, or just being there with yourself saying, here I am, worrying wanting to be better and hoping to be better. And I'm struggling and I'm fighting just to get some help. And sometimes it even works. And I, I suppose to, to summarize, I advise people to be hopeful. And if they find it very hard to be hopeful, to ask help from other people to support their hope. And for professionals, not to be extremely Decisive and to be more curious. That's how we know what works for people, right? We started with the first group. We're having now our eighth group in our specific service of mindfulness course, Um, and we are still learning. We have a plan. We have a timeline for the group. We do this in the first session, and the second, and the third. But it is absolutely never the same, and that's why I love my work so much. The course is wonderful. I I really enjoy having the people coming and meeting new and new presentations. I think one-to-one therapy is also helpful for people because the reality can be really hard and allowing the time to people to have some face-to-face sessions with a therapist can be awfully helpful. Once again, to get to know oneself better and in some cases, just to learn the basic skills in how to uh, manage a new condition. And yeah. we do offer that also in our service. It's not just mindfulness that we offer.
1: It's about how you now manage yourself and your symptoms rather than, as you say, trying to fix anything. It's it's about yeah. working out how you manage it. People are not being sent for psychological therapy necessarily because they're fixing something in their head.
2: Yeah. To, to reframe, it's necessarily to manage yourself. It's be yourself and manage your symptoms if possible. And if not, seek for help.
0: I think we all suffer this kind of trauma of losing one's sense of
1: self due to illness. I loved that point that he made. And I hope that you've felt it too. When you said you talked about losing your sense of self or not being the person that you were. And the way that he described that if you have the ability to reflect on that, you are still there present as yourself. Because it's you that's being curious about how you're not now.
0: No, he said a lot of things that we know, but we don't articulate. And sometimes it takes someone saying it out loud for you to actually hear it. Yeah. No, it was a wonderful, wonderful session. I would have loved to have taken his course. You're very lucky. Moved to North uh, London. I live in South West uh,
1: London, so I don't even know why.
0: <laughs> we We will. We'll put out any links
1: and any resources. He has sent me a resources document that they have created for their long COVID service. And it is so extensive. We will post it on the website. So many different services and just a real collation of lots of different resources. It's quite impressive. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.